it was a learning process to live life as a man. I mean, I always had that internal knowledge of something isn't right. My inner identity doesn't match my outer. But even with coming into my own truth, there are still so many deeply ingrained societal expectations of men that I slowly had to learn over time. Does talking about your money make you cringe? Are you tired of fighting about finances? Do you want to stop sabotaging your financial happiness? Then you are in the right place. Welcome to Breaking Money Silence, a podcast series aimed at helping all of us talk more openly about money. Your host, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, is a wealth psychology expert who is doing what she does best, speaking about taboo topics. International speaker, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection, Kathleen understands money and our relationship with it. Over the past decade, she has empowered thousands of people to break money silence at home and at work. Now, here is Kathleen. I am really excited to have our next guest on Breaking Money Silence. I met him at a conference recently, and we had a brief but very impactful conversation. His name is Ray Lemonshoff. He is a practice management consultant for a regional wealth advisory firm. And uh, we started talking about Ray's transition. He when he started working in the industry, was living as a woman. And at age 25, he came out as transgender man and then underwent medical gender confirmation. Uh, He now uses his experience to promote intersectional diversity and inclusion and be an advocate on behalf of the LGBTQIA plus community. And I think in a few moments, he was able to open my eyes uh, to looking at things a little bit differently. So I wanted to bring that conversation to our audience. So welcome, Ray, to Breaking Money Silence. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation and learn uh, more from you. So you know, I'll be honest and transparent to the audience. We were tossing back and forth a couple of different myths, and there's a bunch we could have uh, landed on, but we landed on busting the myth wide open that men find it easy to ask for a raise. So, Ray, tell me a little bit about why you think that's a myth, uh, and then we'll just kind of see where the conversation goes. Absolutely. I think a lot of that stems from the patterns of behavior that are encouraged for men and women in the workplace and how those behaviors are viewed by management. One thing that I talk about a lot in my work as an advocate for the LGBT plus community in the workplace is my own experience of what managers encouraged in me when I was a young woman in finance versus when I was now a young man in finance. And a lot of that carried over into my one-on-one discussions with managers and one-on-one discussions with hiring managers, particularly when we began negotiating salaries. And I believe that it was anticipated that I would be significantly more aggressive than I was when it came down to the nickel and diming of finding the right salary. 
It's so fascinating because there's research out there that uh, that a woman is perceived differently when she negotiates her salary versus a man. And what you're talking about is that you've had the experience of negotiating a salary, uh, identifying as a woman or being a woman, and um, also, you know, more with your true self as a man. So say a little bit more about what you picked up on in terms of the differences, because it's a, it's a real interesting kind of window into how people perceive us in our relationship with money and how that then impacts us. Sure. Well, both both times that I have negotiated salaries, I was negotiating with a woman across the table. Okay. So I'm not, I can't speak too much as to how the gender of the person across from me necessarily influenced the decision making. But when I was first entering the industry as a young woman, implicitly, I was made to feel as if the offer on the table was one that I should be grateful for. And that even the slightest movement away from that was seen as, you know, a larger benefactor acting benevolently towards me. Whereas more recently, when I began renegotiating my salary and asking for a raise, there was a much wider playing field. And when we eventually came to a settlement and the papers were signed, a comment was made that they were surprised I did not push further because they were willing to have even more room on the higher side of things. And I was coming from a past experience where I was thrilled to have gotten as far as I did already. It was an experience that would have never been open to me two years ago. And the realization of, wow, this is the, this is the playing field that men are given versus the playing field of women. There's, there's this whole notion of the boys club in business. Is it real? Ray, is it real? The boys club? It is. hundred oh, percent. Okay. That, that's a, that's a discussion for <laughs> another, another time. Yeah. And that, and that's definitely a, a discussion that I have more about workplace environments and behaviors and opening up diversity and inclusion. But what's been most shocking to me in my own experience of transitioning in the workplace and entering the boys club is that women themselves take part in holding up the old structures of the boys club and when they are given a window into it are glad for the opportunity right when it's just one individual so the fact that a woman was sitting across the table from me saying oh well you know as a man i expected you to push harder we were willing to go higher it was just so surreal to me (laughs) So so there's a lot to unpack there. So first of all, when you were negotiating the first time and the second time, was it the mm-hmm. same woman sitting across the table or two different women? No, it, it was two different women. Okay. Yeah. And the, the other thing is when you say that when you were negotiating as a woman, there was, there was kind of this implication that you should be mm-hmm. grateful and that they're, you know, for what was being offered. Right. Can you think back as to, you know, how did you pick up on that? Was it particular language that they used uh, that was different than when you were negotiating as a man? 
I would say mostly body language and a little bit of reading between the lines in actual spoken language. It was the pursing of the lips, the shift in the chair, the very closed off yet authoritative positioning across the table. Whereas the second time around, there was a lot of leaning in. It was more open. Uh, movements were more fluid. It was jovial almost. So I was, I felt encouraged and empowered to continue pushing but it was almost that thrill of oh man I don't know if it's gonna work and now it worked so I better just cut my losses and <laughs> get out while I'm ahead yeah I think a lot of people have felt that way in terms of negotiation and and what's what's interesting and we won't know because we don't have those two women to interview today is if they had a different perception or if they were even aware that maybe their body language was different you certainly experienced it differently. Could there be anything else that had come into play? I mean, sitting there as somebody who is a woman negotiating and knowing that you're not feeling um, like you're being your true self, do you think that got in the way at all? Or do you feel like that's really not part of this conversation? You know, it, it's very possible. Um, because I will say the two women I spoke with were of a similar age and therefore a similar age difference to me. Mm -hmm. They were coming from the same industry. I'm not sure of their individual lengths of service in the industry. But one thing that I talk about a lot is my experience after coming out. I uncovered so many parts of my personality that I had buried in the interest of continuing this facade of living my life as a woman and feeling like I had no other options. So I better do the best I can with the cards I have been dealt. Mm. And it's all of that extra emotional labor that takes resources away from being your true self and forces you to dampen certain parts of your personality just so you can continue on with that facade. Um, definitely am a lot more outspoken now than I have been previously. Definitely am a lot more um, confident in personal interactions. But, and I'm sure many, if not the vast majority of your listeners, can relate to the fact that imposter syndrome is real. And it is most prevalent when we are in those uh, high stakes, high pressure situations like quarterly reviews and <laughs> salary negotiations. Right, right. And so it's interesting that as you became, it, it, not surprising, that w as you became more authentically you, you developed uh, confidence, you're more outspoken, because that's, it sounds like part of your personality, probably why we connected. We both have the gift for gab. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but there's, there's one thing I, I want to explore another area too. But there's one thing that I, I don't want to leave um, untouched. The comment you made about taking, uh, women taking part in the idea that there's an old boys network. I, mean, I don't mm -hmm. think I'm paraphrasing that correctly, but you just said something about that. So I would love to know how women kind of collude with that and what, from your perspective, we might be able to do differently. Right. Um, I always like to add the preface when I make these comments that I am a brand new benefactor of white male privilege. So any comments that I make is with the full knowledge I benefit from these systems now that I pass as a 
white man full time and more often than not, I pass it straight. So there, there's a lot of levels there. But what I have found both in my own interactions when I was living life as a woman in a predominantly male industry and now as a man in that industry who interacts with primarily men and occasionally women, when we, when I see women engage with groups of men as the only woman in the room, they find, they tend to ingratiate themselves to the boys club and act like, no, I'm cool. I'm not like the other girls. I can totally hang with this. I can be a part of this. And inadvertently or not, as they are trying to just look out for themselves in that situation, wind up further holding up the pillars that support the old boys club. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's kind of like uh, morphing yourself to fit into a group. And if the group is all men but you, you're going to act like one of the boys. If the group is all women um, and you're a woman, it's going to be, you know, doing, for lack of a better word, chick stuff or things that women would do together. Sure. To to an extent. Uh, the first part of that, yeah, absolutely. If they're all men, you're going to adjust yourself because it probably is in your own best interest. but at the same time, you're supporting that old boys club. When there are more women in the room, if they're, you know, two, three, five, that's when it feels like, okay, I have the support and the agency to really hold true to my values rather than having to check them at the door. So I'm not seen as an outsider. I'm not seen as an outcast. I can interact. I can have, you know, some participation in what's going on here. Sure. And I'm going to use an obvious example, and and this may be off base, so you can let me know. But, you know, I I know for myself, or I'll speak about my own experience, if I'm hanging out with a bunch of guys and we're mountain biking or skiing, um, you know, I definitely tap into the side of myself that is much more masculine. I tend to Mm -hmm. swear more, even though my husband doesn't swear. I don't know what that's about (laughs) for me. Um, Whereas, you know, I'm also very comfortable hanging out with all women or mixed groups. And so, you know, I'm wondering if, you know, when you look at financial services, often in leadership, there is one woman with a group of guys, whether that's a Mm -hmm. bunch of wholesalers, whether that is somebody uh, in leadership, a woman who has made it to a different level than some other women have made it. Um, That in some ways, you know, I think what you're saying is that the societal expectation or the norms of what guys do when they hang out is reinforced and that it isn't until we have a couple of people around us. And I imagine this can apply to people of gender, people of color, uh, different Mm -hmm. sexual orientations that you start to feel like, well, wait a second. You know, if somebody tells a dirty joke, I'm going to call them on it. It makes me uncomfortable. Something like that. Yeah. And the key difference there is when we are in social groups, when, you know, skiing, playing basketball, hanging out, that in the sports bar watching i don't know where you're from but in in this area where we support the eagles we're <laughs> um, patriots fans here that's okay we'll, we'll still that's be okay <laughs> <laughs> I, i'm i'm open to a diverse uh, set of friends but it, the the key difference there is that we are socializing and in the workplace we are there to 
earn our income. There is an inherent financial incentive for us to perform in certain ways. And when your ability to provide for yourself, for your family, for your future has that income hanging over it and you feel like I can't really be myself, I need to perform and earn that paycheck, that's where the real issue comes in. Thank you for that clarification. How do you think this has impacted your career, your um, transition, and you now being, as you eloquently put it, a brand new uh, beneficiary of uh, white male privilege? I actually feel really lucky to be in the position that I'm at, not just because I benefit from these old systems, which, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, the reality is now I do when I walk into a room and no one knows me. But I have been lucky enough to be empowered in my workplace to step forward and share my experience and to call attention to disparities that are prevalent in the workplace and to try to take my experience from the female perspective, from the male perspective, you know, the polar opposites of masculine and feminine performative behavior in corporate America and try to arrive at some kind of truth in the middle. I have been given a platform as an employee resource group leader in my firm, uh, and we work on education and advocacy across the gender and sexual orientation spectrum to try to change how we view diversity and inclusion in the workplace and how DNI impacts workplace behaviors. I'm curious how this has impacted you personally. Um, you know, there's the negotiating for a raise, there's the way people perceive you at work, but then there's your personal life. There, There is my personal life. I, I touched on this briefly in another comment that I feel so lucky to have had the resources and support from my community to come out and live as my authentic self because I've uncovered new parts of my personality I didn't even realize that I had been burying for so long in an effort to just conform and deal with the hand I'd been dealt. It, it was a learning process to live life as a man. I mean, I always had that internal knowledge of something isn't right my inner identity doesn't match my outer but even with coming into my own truth there are still so many deeply ingrained societal expectations of men that i slowly had to learn over time and were particularly interesting when re-entering the dating field no longer as a lesbian woman but now as a queer man so so tell me, because I know you were recently engaged, and of yes. course, any couple that comes together, the partners have to, whether they're aware of it or not, have conversations about money or figure out how mm -hmm. to do this thing called money. And so um, how have you, you know, when you were entering the dating world and now that you're, um, I guess, officially off the market, uh, yes. how have you two kind of navigated the financial aspects and as it relates to, or, or maybe it doesn't relate to at all, gender? Oh, it, it definitely does for us. I, I am recently engaged. I am thrilled to be 
setting out on a lifelong journey with my partner. But when she and I first met and first began dating, we were both coming from the experience of predominantly dating women. So just as I wasn't completely sure how to carry myself as a man dating a woman for the first time, she hadn't had a lot of experience with men up to that point. So there was definitely navigating the expectations that we see in popular media around who picks up the check at the end of a date. And now it's a conversation that we can joke about, but there were definitely times of serious tension where it was, okay, are you going to feel antagonized and have your masculinity called into question if I pick up the check? Is that going to be uncomfortable for you? And there definitely was some play, not just with gender and gender roles, but um, our own backgrounds. I'm first generation American. She is not. I come from a Jewish family. She comes from a Christian background. There are definitely more rigid roles in my past experience than hers. And there is some trepidation around, am I going to make you uncomfortable if we break those down? Now, so who did end up paying for the first time for the check? Do you remember? Uh, to be honest, our our first day, I I don't. I'm pretty. We were we were going Dutch the first date because it wasn't until a few weeks later we realized it had in fact been a date. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love yeah. that because <laughs> even when you're, I think even nowadays when we're talking about you know um, feminism and talking about you know trying to be more empowered or even female breadwinners and what mm. do you do when you ultimately are going to pay that visa bill but you are out socially and you know for some husbands it may or may not be a problem uh, if you pick up that tab and so it is really interesting question and so you know where did you guys land if you don't mind sharing on how you're going to manage those uh, situations you know now that you're engaged is it still going Dutch? Is it somebody pays over somebody else? Or does it depend on the social situation you're in? Yeah, so for going out and having fun with friends or solo, it's pretty much whoever reaches for the check first, and it's not a big deal. Uh Um, Again, as to queer people who are entering a relationship that seems very straight from the outside gazing in, what we've decided is best for us is an equitable contribution to our household bills and fees. So we break down the money that we need to spend every month. Uh, We compare it to the money that each of us earn, and we distribute it pretty equitably on a bill-by-bill basis. Mm -hmm. Well, I just love that you've had the conversations and you've come up with this plan. I wish all couples uh, would do that, uh, whether they're getting married or whether they're living together. I think it's a really, obviously, if I run a podcast called Breaking Money Silence, I think it's a really valuable conversation. So Mm -hmm. what advice would you give for, say, financial professionals who are working with couples like you, what can they do to be open and welcoming? And, and, and should they even explore gender differences in the conversation? 
there, there were a lot of levels to that question. So I'm going to start big and zero in. I think the number one thing that anyone can do when it comes to talking about money, when it comes to diversity and inclusion, when it comes to uh, just engaging their wider communities is to remember you're aiming for progress, not perfection. When I was talking about myself and my fiance, we did not immediately arrive at those conversations of here's how we're going to plan our household funds. Here's how we're going to spend our money. That took a lot of time and effort and definitely some passive aggressive texts in between. But we have arrived finally at a system that works for us and our relationship and our household. Um, I try to bring that same amount of patience and compassion to the workplace that it is hard to change corporate America there and in, in, you know, international business as well. There are centuries of mindsets and cultural norms that we need to re-examine and slowly take apart. And regardless of how much passion I bring to that project, it is not going to happen overnight. So I think looking at larger trends, whether it's your business as a whole or your relationship with one client and identify where can I make a tangible difference for you and what, which of those tangible differences is going to be most impactful to you, a member of you know, my clientele or my business community. And just start there. Start with one thing that feels good and it, it snowballs. I love that advice because part of what I know I get caught up in and I see other people getting caught up in is the idea that we have to do it right, that we have to figure it out. Like we have to read a book, then we have to go out and we have to do it right. And, um, you know, working with human beings and relationships, things aren't right or wrong. Um, so do you have any doable action steps that you could share with our audience? The doable action, and I've turned this into a game with some of my friends and my employees uh, or fellow employees. When we go to an event, the group that we find ourselves talking to the most, we just do a quick glance of who is in that group. And we do a gut check of, are these the people I always engage with? What does this group look like? Are these the people I want to be engaging with? And how can I push myself outside of my comfort zone there? So if I walk into a room and I'm doing a quick assessment and, oh man, I find that at networking hour, I'm talking to a group of six people and four of them are white women. I'm like, wow, this is my comfort zone. I still gravitate towards women a lot. Um, I should probably be out there talking to more persons of color. I should be talking to more men. I should be talking to uh, younger individuals, older individuals. Any quick gut check I can do of, am I doing myself justice here? Am I really trying to make a larger impact? It's, uh, it's a weird habit to get into at first, but I promise it, it becomes fun. It becomes a really interesting game to play. 
And I like framing it as a game uh, because it also gets back to the progress, not perfection. And that's something, a tool that I'm going to take with me. I really love that, Ray, what you're, what you're saying there, um, because even in my head, I can think about the last event I went to and who I hung out with, and I, I really didn't push myself too much. And so I really like that idea of being curious and, and about yourself and your own behaviors and then taking it from there. So before we end, because you know time goes so fast on this podcast, I want to just get back to our original myth of men find it easy to ask for a raise. Now, granted, we have talked about a lot of different things, which is great. Mm -hmm. We've opened up the dialogue. But if we had to reframe um, that myth into something that's more factual, what would it be? I think that the statement of fact is men and women are both just as nervous as each other when it comes to negotiating salaries. But Typically, men are willing to take a bigger risk. Men are, you know, in society, larger risk takers. And so it may seem when they take the risk and go for the larger number that they are better at negotiating their salaries and wind up, you know, getting the result they want more frequently. So I don't think it comes down to a matter of skill so much as it comes down to an appetite for risk. An appetite for risk. And so in my work, um, helping women negotiate for uh, better salaries and breaking money silence around negotiation, it sounds like really focusing in on that risk element um, and also looking at what are the things that allow you to take a risk, to feel comfortable enough taking a risk. Uh, and it sounds like, you know, I don't know if you agree. You can let me know if you do or you don't. But it, it, it feels to me like gender is part of it, but it's so much more complicated than that when it comes to any type of money behavior. That gender is one lens, but it's not the end-all, be-all lens. And um, how we're perceived may be differently, but what we do with that is really um, maybe at the core of what's important. I definitely agree. I think why gender is so easy to point to when it comes to differences is because it's the first lens that we learn as humans. It is so easy to teach a child boy versus girl. It's more complicated to teach lenses like race, socioeconomic background, um, life experiences. And that's why we continuously come back to gender as the easy divider, because it's the first one that we learn to identify consistently. Wow, Ray, I, I'm going to leave it at that because I think you said it so beautifully. And I really um, am so happy. I feel like things happen for a reason that we bumped into each other because literally it was five minutes. And I said, I really want to continue this conversation with Ray and, and hear his thoughts. Um, so I hope we can keep the conversation going. I know our listeners have benefited. And thank you so much for breaking money silence with me today. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Breaking Money Silence, hosted by Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, a wealth psychology expert, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Also, share this episode with your friends and family. It is a great way to get the conversation started. For more money talk tips and information, or to hire Kathleen to speak at your next event, go to www.breakingmoneysilence.com.